Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. Thank you so much for lending us your ears and the only non-renewable resource that you possess. That is your time, of course. Wherever you are, you could be doing anything else. You've chosen to spend your time with us. We are going to protect and honor that. Thank you for being here. If you're new to Suncast, I believe that you're going to get a ton of value out of this episode. I'm so excited that you chose this one to listen to. Today's entrepreneur is a Texas clean energy pioneer, and she falls into that category of folks that I deem startup junkies, who, as she says, are gluttons for punishment. I have to admit that that's true for myself as well. Nisha Desai is on startup number seven, and she's got some serious energy market cred, having been involved in energy innovation in multiple sectors. We go deep on how she lucked into the energy business and turned six previous experiences into her current business. We also go into some fun details about her adventures down in the South Pole, as well as her involvement in other adventures like Puerto Rico's grid restructuring. (laughs) This and more await you on today's Suncast. If you like what you are hearing, I hope you'll subscribe to the show because that's the only way that you can guarantee you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this. Of course, you can always check it out on mysuncast.com. That's where nearly 400 additional founder stories and startup advice reside permanently. A special thanks to all of you who have clicked on become a member or work with Nico on our website as well. It helps keep this podcast going and that's another way that I love interacting with you, our faithful audience. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, this is going to be a fun conversation. A little preamble for you and introducing Nisha today. A hat tip to our mutual friend, Evan Caron at ClearTrace, who, in his infinite wisdom, invited the few friends he had on Clubhouse, uh, Nisha being one of them, when Evan and I did a Clubhouse not too long ago uh, on the sort of what's happening in the Texas energy market. And this lady popped in who I'd never met before, and it just just blew me away and everyone else in the Clubhouse with her understanding of how the Texas market was set up and kind of her ponderings on what was happening and what might happen in the future. That person was today's guest, Nisha Desai. She's the founder and CEO of Inuity Holdings, which is a startup that takes big data analytics and transforms the business model that consumers use to buy clean energy. We'll hear more about that in a bit. But I also had the fun uh, exchange of having to of having the opportunity to meet Nisha again when our other mutual friend Scott Wynn in Austin invited me into his world for their Earth Day panel, and Nisha. Uh, joined us in a breakout session where the ideas for this interview were cemented. And I'm so glad that they were. Nisha, I'm stoked to have you on Suncast. I can't wait to hear 
all the things that unfold. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, uh, man, you've got such a cool background. Uh, there, I mean, a lot of different places that we could explore. Uh, you've worked in distributed generation at NRG. You've been uh, a, a consultant at Booz Allen. You even worked for one of the fabled energy companies uh, that I know we'll get into. But can you tell me, how did you sort of fall into working in the energy business to begin with? Yeah, well, you had mentioned um, Booz Allen, right? So I had been fortunate to have a internship with them in college. And so, you know, had an internship with them in college, did reasonably well. They said, hey, we're going to give you a permanent job if you want to take it. And I'm like, sure. That makes my senior year really easy, right? You know, because otherwise you'd be stressing out about finding a job and all the rest. Well, you know, what happened was um, kind of, you know, they called me up at some point and said, hey, you know, uh, you still have a job. I'm like, well, uh, well, that's great. But we've changed our program for the incoming analysts and you now have to pick a group. So pick a group. And so I reflected back to my summer working there as an intern, as an intern, you know, got exposed to all the different groups. And the thing that stood out to me was um, this guy, Dennis Meany, who had given a presentation about the energy group. And he had introduced himself by saying, look, I'm not an MBA. I actually have a public policy or government degree. I thought that was super interesting because, and he was explaining, well, because a lot of times the energy industry, really, there's a lot of public policy issues. And for me, you know, at that time, I was a double major political science and economics. And, you know, the things that were really interesting to me were things that were all really about making the world go round. So I didn't know anything about energy, but that like one little bit stuck in my head. So without kind of you know, thinking much, much, much more about it. It was like, I want to join the energy group. And that's where it was, right? I think a lot of people these days, um, oh, and this is really, really cool, right? So, you know, there's a lot more education about energy and environment and climate change and things like that. And there are a lot of students in school. They um, have been studying renewable energy. They've been studying wind, solar, climate, you know, here in Texas, there are people who have been studying petroleum engineering. So, you know, they've been recruited by the oil and gas industry for practically their entire college career. I didn't have any of that. So it was really, you know, very much a kind of a last minute type of thing. Uh, so I started my career in the energy group at Booz Allen, uh, learned a lot from that and just kind of went from there. That's, that's amazing. I mean, to get your start in energy uh, Booz Allen is phenomenal to be able to transition from that in the ways that you have uh, is also really uh, inspiring for me. We've mentioned in the lead up that you're startup junkie. So I want to talk about those early startup stripes. When did you realize that you were more entrepreneur than employee? How did that sort of come to fruition for you as a as an as an evolution of sort of getting your feet wet in the work world. Well, it wasn't until long past business school. Let me tell you that, right? Okay. So, um yeah, so you know, started as a management consultant again at Booz Allen, working in the energy industry as a consultant, we always had the opportunity to work on like cool strategy and stuff that was happening in the future and a lot of change. And so that's really neat, really exciting. Went to business school. And by the way, I mean, I was very familiar with 
interesting things that were going on in the energy industry. And Enron was always kind of at the forefront of some of these interesting things going on in the energy industry. I may be dating myself right now. I, I was totally confused. I was looking at your LinkedIn thinking that somehow booze had come after Enron. I was so confused. So... <laughs> Sorry. Keep well, going. it had actually. Yeah. Well, you know, because I I ended up. Uh, well, I went back to booze, um, kind That's of like yeah. mid career. Yeah. But what had happened was, you know, I I I'd, I'd gone to business school. Was like, oh, I don't want to be a management consultant. You know, I want to go off and do really really cool stuff. But at that time. This was really in kind of the heart of the dot com years. I just didn't get startups, right? I got the whole idea of being at a startup and, uh, you know, and finding one that was going to get an IPO and making money. I got the idea of um, being in an exciting environment, right, with a lot more things going on that was very entrepreneurial. At that time, I thought Enron was doing all sorts of really, really cool things, but I didn't really think of Enron as a startup, but I just didn't understand the whole, that, that, that very front bit of starting up, right? So people were like entering into business plan competitions. I was just like, I don't understand. You should have gone to the other Boston-based business school. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> our, friend, our friend Kyle Cherrick would agree, right? Babson is definitely where you, where you would have learned about that entrepreneurial bit. You went to the other, you know, somewhat well-known business school in Boston. So I did. But, you know, so I went to Enron because Enron was very innovative, right? And when I was there, you know, Enron went from being the most innovative energy company to being the most innovative company. And I think it was really at Enron where I finally put two together, two and two together in terms of, okay, so yeah, like new product development, innovation. Yes, I get that. But then how do you think about that in the context of just really creating a new business from scratch, right? And so seeing it in that environment where things were just being implemented left and right and Enron was starting new businesses left and right, I think that's what really finally started to bring things home for me a little bit about like, that's pretty cool. And that's what I want to do. And I want to innovate and I want to go, I want to go make fresh tracks, right? Do you yeah. like to ski? Anyone who's a skier? Oh, right? totally. They, they want to make fresh tracks, right? Yeah. Well, I want to, I want to get back to skiing uh, at some point here, but we had something in common that I, I don't think we've, we've discussed. And that is early in your career, you did biz dev down in Latin America, specifically Central America, which is where I was a Peace Corps volunteer. I spent a lot of my time doing biz dev and you were a part of the water subsidiary, which, you know, is, is a part of the sustainable future that we all have to be aware of. But in the 90s, you were helping sort of manage this startup business under Enron around water. I'd love to understand the insight that you gained working at a fast paced startup like Enron uh, around startup culture. Like, what did you learn about startups at Enron that you now are able to leverage in the you know six startups that you've had before the one that you're doing now? So that's a really good question. I think there were a lot of tough lessons that were learned, right? So I went into what at the time was Enron's newest startup, which was the water company. What I really learned there is just how important it is for the investor to match the investment. So so Enron, you know, at the time was really, really touting, you know, trading, intellectual capital really, really kind of this asset light type of business model. And meanwhile, uh, Rebecca Mark within under Enron was starting, you know, this water company, which was actually the opposite. I mean, it was 
asset intensive. It was really all about investing money in infrastructure. And while, I mean, investing capital in infrastructure is desperately needed and there's lots of opportunities to bring, you know, discipline and um, just, you know, operational excellence and whatnot to the water industry, right? It was, uh, it's a very capital intensive business model. So Enron really is the majority owner of Zurich's, it created some not necessarily great dynamics in terms of like really being able to um, set a company off on the best footing. Uh, And, you know, certainly there's a lot of tension there. But, you know, that's that's something that I've learned in a lot of different startups. Right. So I left I ended up leaving like, first of all, the water company ended up uh, becoming Zurich's, uh, and then it was partially spun from Enron in what was the second largest industrial IPO that had been done to that point. And at that point, then, you know, I, I ended up getting recruited out to join a dot com that was serving the oil and gas industry. So, but there again, there was, you know, we, we kind of went in, we did a lot of business planning. Like the idea was, hey, we've got this catalog, it's this 80 year old asset in the oil and gas industry. Can we? put it online and do e-commerce off of it. And um, so it sounds really cool, a really good idea. Um, what we found when we dove in and we really kind of evaluated what the business model was and what the opportunity was, you know, it's like, okay, here, this is the type of business that we can create by doing this. And then, you know, from the investor's perspective who had actually, you know, kind of set up this business, it didn't necessarily really make sense. So they ended up selling it to to Euro Money. So they managed to get out with uh, without great. losing their shirts. There were a yeah. lot of people who lost hundreds of millions of dollars. They did not. They they recovered much of their investment. But you know, again, it was just all right. So you've got you know some investors with a very clear you know per- particular perspective about you know what kind of risks they want to take and how they're going to make money. The business opportunity there wasn't necessarily it didn't necessarily match that thesis. So doesn't mean it wasn't a bad, it was a, you know, it was a bad business. It was just not necessarily for that particular investor, sell it to another company and it, uh, you know, another company can, uh, as the owner of that particular business can uh, make a lot more of it. You know, it's always fascinating for me to hear the, the twists and turns of someone's career and especially getting a chance to talk with someone who's had a foot both in the clean energy world and the oil and gas world. You know, world oil was a play on, uh, another play on data and how to monetize that data. What brought you back to the power side of the business? So post-World Oil, I actually went to a venture capital company that was a Houston-related startup in itself and to really invest in kind of energy technology companies um, with the idea that, look, it's Houston. There's got to be a bunch of energy tech companies coming out of that. And from there, I actually had met some folks that were working on energy storage, ended up working with them uh, and joining their energy storage startup. And so this was in the very, very early days of uh, the Texas wind market opening up. And so what was happening is there's so much wind um, that was essentially kind of overwhelming the transmission system. Yeah, curtailment. Um, and, they, they, and, and look, you know, when it comes to power, I mean, power is, you know, power prices are really volatile and storage has always been the holy grail. But now there's uh, some folks that were working on a technology, compressed air energy storage development. We had some sites, you know, there was, you know, real thinking that we could put energy storage together with wind and yeah. 
and generate value. And so, wow. you know, I spent quite a bit, you know, I spent three years there actually as a pioneer. And this was compressed air storage, if I'm not mistaken, right? Compressed air energy storage. Exactly. Wow. So, you know, it was the only solution at that time. Well, it, it was one of two solutions for kind of massive amounts of storage and then long dated storage. So the other being pumped hydro. Meaning like long duration. The ability to long duration, de- yeah, that's to right. redeploy, yeah, redeploy that over a long period of time. Yeah, and batteries, you know, that was just, you know, that was a pipe dream, right? Yeah, this is two thousand and two. This is not, yeah, people were powering batter using car batteries to power off grid systems at this point. Yeah, exactly. But what we did, um, which was pretty cool, is you know, kind of figure out the business model, right? So, what are the different things that can be done with storage, right? So. The ancillary services, the grid services, the transmission deferral, on-peak, off-peak arbitrage, you know, so it's basically stacking up different values. So we figured out how to do that. We figured out how to kind of build a business case for putting energy storage and renewables together. We thought we had a competitive value proposition. The only thing is it was just, we always felt like we were at step one of a 12-step program. So there were a lot, there were a few wins for sure, you know, got some, uh, you know, got some interesting grants and uh, opportunities from, from the DOE and from NYSERDA and from state energy offices in Texas and New Mexico um, and Oklahoma. So we're definitely able to put teams together, coalitions, but yeah, unfortunately we just could not get to the point where we were able to get like a project financed. And so, you know, yeah, well, it it was absolutely. It was definitely too early. Uh, so, you know, that was that was one time where I really really had to be thinking about okay, there's no one telling me to leave, but at some point I've just I've just got to put the cards down. Before you put the cards down uh, on this topic specifically, as we're seeing not only a veritable like revolution in energy transition for Texas as what will be hands down the largest renewable sector in the United States in a very short amount of time. Storage is playing a big role now. And I'm sure that you're pleased to see that your home state is having such a huge storage boom. But I have to ask, is there anything new uh, these days uh, that you hadn't already figured out back then? Are there any sort of new tricks that you see in the market right now or, or real tactics that would have been benefited benefited from back then that have been innovated upon now? I think the thing that's with, with the technology characteristics itself of batteries, and there's a lot more locational flexibility with them, which also means not just kind of where in the country you put it and where on the grid you put it, but then also being able to put it at the customer premises. And so that opens up a lot of different value streams and value propositions that you don't get from having kind of bulk energy storage that is pretty much just kind of a supply side producer type of resource, right? When you can put it at the consumer side and use it to provide the consumer with you know, flexibility and storage and resilience at their site, it is a very different proposition. So that again, that's something that, that a, a different technology can do, open up, you know, additional kind of value streams uh, to make it work. Well, you were mentioning at some point, you've got to, as Seth Godin says, you got to know when to stop digging, right? How did, how did it become clear to you that you needed to start sort of raise your head out of the trenches and look around to decide if this is where your career was going? Well, I mean, it's just, you know, at that point I'd been there for three years and we didn't have a deal done, right? We didn't, we didn't, we didn't have, 
we didn't have a project finance. Yeah. Was three years too long looking back on it? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, probably. Maybe, maybe, maybe one and a half or two years would have been plenty. Right. Um, you know, I, I think I was still, still learning and whatnot, but I was also kind of at the tail end where I was getting a little bit tired to be honest with you. Right. (laughs) And so rolling that pencil uphill. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So kind of figuring out maybe stepping out of that a little bit earlier, um, might've been a good thing. Can I ask you a question about then? Cause like, this was my experience as well. And it was similar. And I know you had to experience this in Xerix. What we tend to do as people with skills in business development and a network in uh, a niche, let's Central America or in storage or in the power sector of Texas, but loving the bleeding edge of technology, we can tend to, and I see this happen to myself and to a lot of others in the sector, get stuck in a really small niche early in your career, which can be detrimental, right? You've spent a year and a half too long, perhaps, at this storage company where you weren't seeing... I said rolling a pencil uphill. There's no velocity. You don't get to see enough deals. You don't get to see what success looks like enough times to form that filter to be able to see an opportunity and instantaneously know it's a good deal because you've seen so many more that look like a good deal. That can definitely happen. Although now sitting on this side, it's like a year and a half, a big deal, right? <laughs> you know, it's kind of, you know, if it had been six months, a year and a half, right? It, it really becomes harder to think about like optimizing a single year or single, single six months or something like that. Certainly at that age, right. Where you're going like, Oh, you know, like a body clock or whatever. Right. The time seems a lot more significant. Nico, to your point in terms of like, okay, once I figured out there's pushing the pencil uphill, right? No, it's like, okay, let me, let me regroup. And actually at that point, you know, there's, Tons of things going on with energy and huge demand for consultants from my old team at Booz Allen. Um, ended up going back to them, um, you know, working on lots of really, really cool projects, both in uh, the oil and gas side and for utilities. You know, the nice thing there was um, having the bigger team, getting a chance to have more of the you know, the coaching and the professional development and things that you perhaps sometimes miss out on when you're in a very, very small and entrepreneurial environment. So glad environment. you said that. Yes. But, uh, you know, but I think there was a point of where I figured out, okay, well, all right, I'm not, not actually programmed to be a partner in a management consulting company. Yeah. And I would much rather be the entrepreneur again or kind of be in industry again. And so I ended up at my next startup. Which mm-hmm. was um, number five, right? To Sarah Solar, and that was startup number five. <laughs> Again, it was still somebody else's startup. I'm keeping so, the count here. I'm fascinated. Know, Go ahead. Still somebody else's startup, but this was a solar company. It was concentrating solar power. Uh, so it was a development company associated with a new technology company. You know, super, super exciting. For context, folks listening in 2021, 2022 might think, what? You went to a Dish Sterling company? But we had lots of uh, opportunity in 2009, 2010. Optis Solar had just gotten bought by First Solar. Like this was not a dumb idea that concentrating solar power was going to proliferate and be a mega opportunity. Absolutely. And, you know, at that time, PV was six bucks a watt, right? Yeah. And our cost projections right. were $3 a watt. Yeah. And so, you know, what we had was a very, very viable 
value proposition and, you know, a chance to kind of establish, you know, something that had a very defined niche uh, in the market, you know, because it was something that, uh, you know, could provide solar power with a lower cost of lower levelized cost of electricity than PV could, you know, be a lot more efficient, uh, a lot more efficient in terms of land use. And, And you know, I mean, it was really neat. Super sexy at the time. Yeah. It really different. And, uh, you know, it was really neat because it was also something where, you know, I could add a lot of value. I think within two months after I got to the company, I put the first new PPA uh, on the table for the company right here in Texas, actually, which, by the way, was the first utility scale contract that was signed for solar in Texas. Boom, Solar so, Warrior, right there, pioneer yeah. status. There was technology risk though. And what happened in a few years is PV had dropped its costs in half and our costs hadn't. And in fact, then there were some things around, you know, the technology, which turned out to be, you know, a lot more complicated than people had anticipated. And so, but the interesting thing was, you know, my, my husband, and this is a interesting um view on how you manage a career in family, right? So my husband, at some point, he had an opportunity to go to England on an expat assignment. And this is, you know, when we, when I was taking the job at this, at this startup, I was like, look, let's just make sure that um, your boss doesn't have any plans for you that we don't know about because, you know, I'm going to go work at this, I'm going to take this new job at a startup and, you know, really want to you know, be able to make a commitment to be there. So I had just gotten this deal done, right? This contract for for solar, first one in the state of Texas and kind of running high. And then my husband's boss surprises him with, hey, would you like to take an expat assignment in London? It's like, what do you say to that, right? I mean, you know, that's it's a pretty cool opportunity, right? So we managed to work it out. So I ended up, you know, managing to, you know, negotiate a transfer with my startup to England. It turns out fortuitously, you know, our investor happened to be an Irish company. And so they had set up a team in Europe. And so it's like I, you know, negotiated a transfer to the European team. And I ended up, um, well, by the way, it's not very sunny in England. So I spent my time, you know, traveling to Turkey and Greece and Cyprus and, you know, the Eastern Mediterranean Eastern Bloc, was responsible yeah. for, for business development and trying to put some new projects on the table there. Unfortunately, again, PV costs were dropping like a rock at some point, uh, And this is while we were overseas. Uh, the investors decided to just kind of wind down the European business. And so I'm there in Europe, Europe, like as an expat, like knowing that at some point we're going to be transferred back to the U.S. and like wondering, what do I do? So this was actually kind of where like necessity meets invention or invention meets necessity, I guess, in that, uh, you know, so I'd come out of the company. One of the things that was really part of the startup we were on the development side. We were always having arguments with the technology side of the business as far as how well the technology was performing in our pilot projects. And, you know, I was just like, that's just a math problem. You just collect enough data and you can back calculate all the formulas around soiling and shading. And yeah, I am actually. <laughs> so that's, that's my, that's my superpower is like math. That's what, I, guess, I guess that's what <laughs> we don't have in common. <laughs> it's not necessarily communication. It's, it's analytics, right? Anyway, so it was just like, I, I was, um, you know, kind of had this inkling. It's like, maybe other people have this problem too. And, 
you know, sure enough, right, when I talked to people who were investing in solar projects, they had no idea why their solar projects were overperforming. I'm thinking about it as, okay, overperforming. Hmm. Is that because someone sandbagged the resource assessment or is it because someone sandbagged the performance or maybe there's just addition, more sunshine that they had planned for and it's hiding the fact that the technology itself is underperforming from a warranty perspective. So, you know, I'm like, I'm thinking through all this stuff because I'm like, you know, going, hey, and if you knew all of that, then you could have some proprietary insight that would help you like buy and sell some of these portfolios as they eventually, as they inevitably will be bought and sold from the current investors to permanent investors and stuff like that. Right. And keep in mind, I mean, this was like 2011, right? So this was Still, I mean, this was 10 years ago, right? And look how much the solar industry has grown since then. And so, you know, I had a really great idea, but at that point, I knew how to do, like, come up with good ideas and, like, figure out what the business is, what the business plan would look like and stuff like that. But as far as, like, how do you convert that into a new company? How to be the one that starts the company? That was, like, still a little bit foreign to me. I ended up meeting some folks who were working on some. Uh, similar type of concepts. By this time, I had already engaged like a beta customer and, uh, you know, it was just like, hey, you know, there's a real idea here. Let's form a company around it. I'm like, uh, um, okay. Then, you know, we, we got transferred back to Houston. And so I ended up coming back to Houston to familiar ground. I was like, I need some money. So I raised some money from an accelerator, brought my co-founders over, like maybe about two months later, completely blew everything up, right? Because- because starting a company is hard. Well, starting a company is hard. So it it was, that was startup number six. And that was the first time that it had been my startup. Before then, it was like I had joined someone else's startup, right? I was a startup queen, but I was like a startup employee, right? So this is the first time I was like a co-founder. And first of all, it changes, I think it really changes your perspective in a very profound way right? When you're the owner. You said to me, and I want to set the stage for this, unless you, lest we not get these words in here, but you said to me something that profoundly changed the way I think about what I believe you're going to talk about next. And that is the difference between entrepreneurial and entrepreneur. No, absolutely. Again, I, I, you know, entrepreneurial, you know, go-getter, self-starter, you know, like you can do all those things, but entrepreneur, right? In terms of actually starting a company or putting the drawing the line in the sand and saying, I'm doing this. Nobody is paying me to do it, but I'm going to go figure out how to pull the resources together to make this happen. And you can do that in many, many contexts. It doesn't have to be just around forming a company, a for-profit company. In fact, I think some of the most amazing entrepreneurs in this world are the social entrepreneurs, the ones who create new schools when one is needed or, a, you know, a not-for-profit to go, you know, to, to, save, to save children or to cure blindness or to, you know, hunt for some, you know, for cure for some orphan disease, right? They're amazing, right? You know, on the, on the entrepreneurial, on the, excuse me, on the for-profit corporate entrepreneurship side, you know, that seems kind of easier in comparison because it's like, oh, well, it's it's really about making money, right? If you can convince an investor that there's an opportunity to make money, right? That's that's kind of what you have to do. 
social impact side, you're, you're, you're selling different stuff, right? This experience that I'd had was just like, look, I've got this idea. I know there's a problem. I had the problem before in my previous company. I've gone and validated that other people have this problem. I have an idea for a solution. Now, how do I bring all that together? And so I think I was probably, if I knew what I know now, I, I would have made so much more of being in that type of position. But what I didn't know is like how to find people to work with to actually take that startup journey with you. And so I, I kind of landed, I landed in the lap of some other people who, you know, have much firmer ideas about what they wanted to do as an entrepreneur. I was still like not necessarily conceiving of that that I deserve to be the entrepreneur as opposed to just the person who had the good idea, right? And, you know, as I kind of settled into that, I realized I have, you know, some really, really good people as my co-founders, but they're not necessarily who I need as my co-founders. Maybe I hopped into the wedding too soon. I often ask, what's the, what's the number one mistake you make early on uh, as an as a entrepreneur or founder? And how would you, how do you correct it now in your, in your current business? Yeah. So I, I broke up with them right yeah. in the middle of the accelerator program. It was amazing. So it turns out choosing your team could be the most critical step. Oh no, it absolutely is. Absolutely is. Right. But it is also a journey, right? It's hard. Like studying, setting up a company is hard. So basically, you know, after actual sun, right. It was just like, oh, this was fun. I ended up putting my next set of ideas together and pitching them to NRG. And they said, we're not going to fund your ideas, but we need these entrepreneurial ideas. So please come inside and be an internal entrepreneur. And I was like, sure. Because at that point, it wasn't necessarily about working for myself. It was about like, hey, I've got these ideas. How can I make them happen? How can I make great things happen in the energy industry? So by the way, just keep in mind that everything I've done has been about energy and infrastructure. And so there is really a passion for this industry and making it better. Yeah, ended up at NRG. I I was the VP of distributed generation, uh, eventually became the VP of distributed generation. But the great thing about that experience was that it really brought me onto the consumer side of things. Now, at NRG, my customers were commercial and industrial consumers, but it was really all about like not just being the producer, but like figuring out how to really, really get tight with the user of energy. And there's so many mega trends that are going on with kind of empowering consumers. But I left NRG a bit frustrated because I felt like the residential customer was not necessarily benefiting to the same degree that commercial and industrial customers are benefiting when it comes to this clean energy revolution, right? So again, when I was working in energy storage, I saw, you know, I saw what the PPA prices were for the wind deals and I know where they were relative to the market price for kind of grid power. And um, as someone who's just been involved with solar and, uh, you know, a lot of other deals, like I know what the project finance economics look like and I've seen the cost of solar drop dramatically. And then I see on the consumer side, like the residential customer is being told, oh, you've got to pay a premium for clean energy. And it's like, nah, uh, what we have to do is we have to figure out how to completely rethink the business model such that the customer, the end customer, if they don't have the ability to put solar on the roof, that they can still benefit from the fact that 
you know, you can kind of make an investment and like get to a cost of energy that's lower than brown power. So what I learned there was kind of, you know, what that retail side of the business looked like. And it kind of married up with just a whole lot of experiences, knowing what the big trends are, And then also being at a point in my life where it's like, I want this. I can't necessarily put solar on my house. And so, again, it's a product idea that comes out of my own personal experience and desires, but like testing it with people, you know, feeling really confident that, you know, there's a market for it. And I just need to be the one that puts this opportunity together. So, so now I'm, now I'm on, now I'm on startup number seven. You know, one of the things that I'll note just observing the arc of this narrative is that you very skillfully navigated going out into the out into the startup world and then back into what I'll call the comfort of a large entity that gives you the ability to pull back to 30,000 feet, scope the market, make massive connections, get really massive credibility. Booz Allen, NRG, you can't ask for better credibility than that. And then drop back into the entrepreneurial world with another leveling up of expertise, credibility, and network. That's fair. That's a good way to put it. Although, you know, I think that um, I will say it was, for me, really about, okay, who's well positioned to make big change? And it happened to be a big company. Yeah, a lot of, so. this, a lot of this that we ask ourselves is like, I look at your LinkedIn and I think, how intentional and um, and de- de- decided was her career path versus, uh, you know, what many of us uh, maybe experienced, which is kind of falling forward. I was very intentional about the path I took, and I also got really lucky. It's always a combination of both, right? I mean, you can never predict what doors are going to open for you, right? You can you can decide which doors you're going to go through and when you're just going to actually look for new doors, right? You know, on, on one sense, everything has been you know, a function of, you know, opportunities that were all of a sudden opened up to me and caused me to go in a different direction, right? I talk about joining Booze and joining the energy company, but or joining the energy group. But, you know, at that point, I was really thinking, well, you know, maybe I'll go become a PhD in economics, right? Um, And I joined the energy group and was like, wow, this is a super fascinating industry and I can make a huge mark um, and have a lot of fun. Hey, I've got a quick question for you. Did you ever think, man, I wish I could just text Nico. I have a question for him. Hey, Nico, where is your favorite Thai restaurant in Durham? Hey, Nico, what are the flight prices to Mexico City right now? Hey, Nico, where are you going to be staying in New Orleans this year for North America Smart Energy Week? If any of those questions have occurred to you or some other thing that you'd like to chat with me about, why don't you text me at 310-634-1780. I'm running a little test to see if I can actually get you as a listener to respond. So there you go. That's my number, 310-634-1780. Shoot me a text message. I'd like to know if you're going to North America Smart Energy Week 2021 in New Orleans. I'm going to be there. So why don't you take this opportunity to text 310-634-1780 and let me know, Nico, I'm going. Or Nico, you're crazy. Why in the heck would I be in New Orleans? We're still in a pandemic. Either way, I love you, and I hope to see you there, and I hope that you'll text me. That number, again, is right there in your podcast player description if you click on it. Anisha, you are clearly, uh, you've got entrepreneurism in your blood. We talked about entrepreneur versus entrepreneurial, and here you are taking a role again of the entrepreneur dice. Annuity is 
the seventh go at uh, creating value, and this is your deal. So I have to ask the question, why at this juncture in your career, why this problem to solve, which could take you three to 10 years of, of the next chunk of your life? It's personal, right? You know, I'm at a point where, you know, the problems that we're trying to solve are ones that I'm experiencing. I feel like the time is right for the solution, right? And basically, you know, the issue is like for over my career, I've seen renewable energy get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And um, certainly at the wholesale level for utility scale PPAs, right? I I know how much value there is for the off-taker. So it really irritates me that at the residential or kind of the retail level, um, people are told that, you know, if they're buying energy from the grid or whatever, and it's green, that they have to pay a premium for it. Granted, that premium is shrinking, but I've seen plenty of deals where green is cheaper than brown, right? So how do we get that to the end customer? And then also just like for people who don't necessarily have the right roof, um, but want to invest in solar, but don't have all this passive income to go be you know, an investor in solar projects, like is there a way to kind of synthetically create an opportunity to put money to work and get the same type of returns professional investors are doing. So I think it's um, just given how cheap solar has gotten um, and then also just fundamentals in opportunities for new business models and things like that. You know, it's it's the right time. It's a good time. And uh, I'd much rather be doing this and continuing to yeah. try and shoot for the moon rather than work for corporate right now. I hear you. And, uh, and that is the, the drum that I think I've beat for the last five years as well. I really uh, respect that. One of the things that I try to get my hands around or my head around, and, and we might not uh, want to go like too deep down in the rabbit hole of kind of how your business is going, given that there's a lot of proprietary uh, aspects and, and things that we can't necessarily talk about with annuity. But can you help distinguish between, so we've talked about the fact that you are a data nerd and you love understanding how the market works and helping others extract value from that understanding. Is this a technology play or a business model differentiation in the marketplace? And and are are there any analogies for what you're trying to accomplish that would help us understand sort of the the long-term vision for annuity? You know, it really is around business model innovation. You know, there's technology and analytics and whatnot, but that enables us to provide the business model innovation to the customer. And then, you know, effectively, what's what's the analogy, right? I mean, there's a couple of analogies. There's community solar or the ability to subscribe to offsite solar panels. And sure, you know, we're kind of a version of that, sort of, although it's probably much more similar to when you buy the panels and you put them on the roof. Um, you've got that real sense of ownership as opposed to just, you know, like, hey, it's a no contract subscription, right? Which, you know, that, that has no longevity to it on the customer side. So what we're trying to do, we're trying to empower them to kind of make that longer term commitment uh, and then structure it such that there's ownership or at least as close to ownership as we can get with the panels not necessarily being on the roof. And by the way, we're starting in Texas Uh, in the deregulated market in Texas. And there's no net metering policy here, which creates an opportunity for community solar. So we have to create commercial contracts that effectively give someone that ability to have their own personal source of clean energy, not necessarily on their roof. 
Well, Texas has been one of the innovation markets uh, all the way back to your Enron days of how a deregulated supply market can function. So Nisha, where you mentioned Texas, obviously that's your home state and that's where there's a lot of opportunity. Do you see this business model being replicated in other states as well? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's many other states where people have the ability to shop for their own electricity supplier. And so we can certainly expand there. Although I do think that once we, like, you know, I'd said that, you know, it's the technology and the analytics that can kind of enable some of our business model. So if we can, you know, kind of take that technology and use it to enable a regulated utility, for example, to offer their customers the ability to, you know, have ownership purchase panels and kind of, you know, have the utility give them credit in such a way that it risk manages, it, it manages the risk for the utility. And, you know, we can show that it doesn't, like the utilities have to worry about things like, you know, cross subsidizing and, you know, kind of fitting within kind of a regulatory construct. So we think we can use the analytics uh, to enable them to provide the same type of product that we think that uh, we want to provide to our customers and which we think that there's uh, demand for. Super cool. I wonder at what point you'll be able to layer in things like blockchain, like our friend Abe at Sunshare over in uh, Africa is doing, right? The ability to literally own one cell of a solar panel which is producing power, you know, on a facility. I think that's really cool. Well, I spent uh, quite a bit of time doing a deep dive on blockchain a, a couple of years ago, actually. I ran an industry working group looking at blockchain for energy trading. So I have a few ideas about that. Um, you know, I guess the, the thing for me is as a solution for us to do the accounting, it may make sense. I'm not necessarily hearing customers clamor for the type of visibility that blockchain provides them. I mean, we're going to have to do a whole lot more for building trust in kind of the business model, in our brand, et cetera. So, I mean, even if blockchain adds to that, it'll be, you know, kind of a small component of the work that we have to do in the base case. Well, Nisha, back to your home state, Houston has perennially for a century been the hotbed of the oil and gas industry, right? It is the HQ for most of the big companies. And it is, you know, oil town, the, that whole corridor there, Houston and Dallas. And we're seeing the energy industry evolve. We cover a lot of that here on Suncast about that transition. What is your experience right now in the heart of Houston as the industry uh, in many ways gets upended? Well, you know, here's the thing. So Houston, it's definitely embraced its potential position as the energy transition capital of the world, right? I mean, as you said, it's definitely been kind of the the oil and gas capital, you know, the, the energy capital of the world. And now you're seeing a lot more, even like the Greater Houston Partnership and the mayor, um, you know, is talking about uh, Houston as the energy transition capital of the world. And I'm Really, really pleased about that. I've lived in Houston since 1997, you know, in the early 2000s and late 2000s. And this decade, you know, I, I worked in clean energy and alternative energy and renewables and things like that. And it was not necessarily a lonely place just because, I mean, Texas has been a huge, huge market for renewables. But, you know, no one ever really gave Houston the credit for being kind of the 
the, the leadership center for the clean energy industry. And I think now that the oil and gas companies are really kind of waking up and saying, okay, they're going to flex their muscle and they're going to be, they're putting money into, you know, corporate venture companies that are like looking for these new companies. There's a number of the private equity funds, right, that are setting up these energy transition funds. Uh, Greentown Labs, you know, the largest yeah, climate tech incubator in the country, where we're co-working, where we're housed, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. So they they opened up. This was their first expansion, and they picked Houston, Super and exciting. so now there's a facility that's opened up. It's actually a recycled building. It used to be a, a grocery store, and now it's what? a clean tech incubator. Is it in this strip mall? No, 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 no. No, because I'm from the South. Like most grocery stores are in strip malls. That's kind of how. <laughs> yeah, no, there's no strip mall. It's basically got the entire block to itself. Wow. Um, well, so, I'm but, curious. But, you know, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it is. It really is. And I think it speaks volumes of where a major industry player like Greentown Labs sees the industry going, that their first bridge out of Boston is to Houston. You are working, as you said, co-working in Greentown Labs, not working for Greentown Labs, but I know that you're a huge advocate and those guys are doing amazing things. We're going to have to have them uh, on the show as well. I've been uh, chatting with their folks about getting getting some, uh, some Greentown love. You know, one of the things I noticed is they did a feature on, I think it was 10 or 12 women in leadership and you were featured there. For those who didn't see that feature, there were two things that stand out to me. I'd like for you to share what the leadership principle or principles were that you shared in that feature, because uh, I think that um, it was insightful. And then the second, you dropped a teaser about a little trip that you made to the South Pole. And I'd love for you to share with us, to consider this my DM. And so share with the audience kind of what this is all, what that's all about. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to these leadership lessons from you. Yeah, so that piece was done for uh, Women's Month, uh, which is why they had featured uh, 12 of the female founders that are in Greentown Labs. So the advice that I had shared was about your inner monologue, right? You know, you everyone's got that like internal voice that speaks to them. And, you know, sometimes your inner monologue is telling you like, oh, you suck or whatever, right? Or, you know, imposter syndrome, you shouldn't be doing this. You don't have, you have no business doing this. But, you know, at the same time, you can always like your, your inner monologue can also be telling you, you can do this, right? You can do this, you can do this. And so, you know, um, my advice was really like, you're going to have that inner monologue. Why don't you practice using that to be kind to yourself, much the same way, like externally with other people or with delivering criticism or whatever, you 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 practice, you practice gratitude, you practice, you know, how to communicate with, uh, you know, the feedback sandwiches and things like that. But similarly, you can do that to give yourself the support that you need, and. And then you had asked about my trip, right? So yeah, yeah. So I so at the end of 2016, I had this opportunity to go to the South Pole. I decided I wanted to ski to the South Pole. So it was just like this. It was this ambition that I'd had for a number of years. I just kind of wanted to follow in the explorer's footsteps. I wanted to come back. So I didn't want to die on my way back to the pole, <laughs> <Yeah>. but, <laughs> you know, I mean, those, those stories of, you know, Scott and Amundsen, I mean, those you know, were pretty inspiring. And I 
decided I wanted to do something other than just take the cruise down to Antarctica. So, so I found this opportunity. I, I, I didn't know how to cross-country ski. I learned how to cross-country ski. Yeah, I went to this training camp and they, you know, basically I went through polar expedition training, right? Learned how to camp outside and, uh, you know, how to ski, how to pack a sled, how to kind of plan out my nutritional requirements so that you can ensure that you're getting enough calories to haul your sled and keep warm in, you know, minus 20 degree weather. You know, what kind of clothes to wear, you know, the layering systems, how you kind of carve up a routine, all that stuff. And then I ended up like going down there. So, you're in, you're in Norway for training, right? You're still right, relatively close to civilization. But when I went to Antarctica, I mean, at that point, you're off the grid, right? There's no Wi-Fi or cellular service. You know, I had a bunch of friends who were following me on Facebook. But once I got there, like, I really didn't have any communication with them. And it was a long journey, by the way. And my guide was... It ended up being two people and a guide. And then the other guy, he actually got sick. And um, so they had to evacuate him. And my guide's like, well, you know, given the way you ski, you may want to get on that airplane too. And I'm just like, there is no way I am quitting in the middle of this, right? Yes, I've got, you know, another 50 miles or something like that to ski, but I'm going to do it. I can do it. I know I can do it. I'm not going to get talked into, you know, quitting early. Now, just keep in mind, I mean, like, I'm out in the middle of nowhere. So now, now it's just me and the guide. And, you know, so that, going back to that inner monologue, right? It wasn't like I could go check Facebook and see all my friends rooting for me. You know, I had to spend a lot of time with myself, right? Okay, well, the guide is telling me I should quit. Nope, I'm not going to quit. I can do this. I know I can do this and I might be slow. I might be a lot slower than him, but, you know, there's a prize at the end. Yes, my fingers are freezing, you know, but let's, I'm, I've, I've trained. I've trained. I did all the training. I invested in, you know, gear, you know, I'm, it was, it was, it was a very affirming experience, but let me, no, sorry, as an entrepreneur, you know, If you think about it, like entrepreneurs are told like, hey, this isn't going to work all the time, right? This isn't going to work. You'll never make it. There's already a lot of stuff that's out there. What's new about what you're doing? What makes you think that you can be the leader? I mean, whatever it is, right? And by the way, I think being a founder is a very lonely journey as well. I mean, you might be surrounded by people, surrounded by your team, but it is lonely nevertheless. And so that kind of you know, inner voice or that kind of, the opposite of imposter syndrome. You have to train yourself and and support yourself and believing in yourself. Just so I'm clear, were there any other, how many other people were on this journey? It, It ended up being just me and the guide. There was one other person who had signed up for that particular trek to the South Pole. But like I said, he got sick. And he's throwing up over his sled. And so that's, they, they sent a plane to evacuate him. I just think that's so baller. It's so badass that you did that. Uh, for, for any, I don't know uh, how many of you will have any reference. I know a lot of listeners listen to the Rich Roll podcast. Uh, he's one of the only podcasts I routinely listen to when I have an extra three hours for an episode. Uh, and I remember in 2019, 
this story resonates for me because I listened to his episode with Colin O'Brady, who I'm certain you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yep. Yep. I yeah. know who he is. Definitely. Yep. I was following his journey. Um, yeah. So uh, and it's funny, the guy that, so when he was doing his trip, there was another guy who was doing a trip kind of at the same time. Yeah. They were uh, kind of racing Lou Rudd. each other. Yeah. Yep. Lou, who's, who's I met Lou at the, yeah, I met him at the South Pole. The, no shit. Yeah. When I did my trip. Yeah. So. Yeah. So for anybody who doesn't understand the backstory, I'm going to link to the episode called Freeze Solo that, that Rich Roll did with Colin O'Brady, which itself is super inspiring and will give you a completely new uh, insight and perspective on uh, what Nisha just explained that she did. If you don't think that that is impressive, you should go listen to this episode by a guy who spent years of his life preparing to do this. And he did it in an altogether different way, but it's nonetheless like incredibly impressive that, that you chose that path. And I actually love, I didn't know this part of the story and I love, I didn't know any of this story candidly, um, but I love that you came to a challenge where, as you rightly said, your guides said, time to pull a parachute, like get on that plane. It's time to, as Seth Godin would say, time to stop digging, right? Got to know when to stop digging. And you were like, nope, I, I can dig deeper. What was the first thing that you consumed that wasn't on your pack? Like when you got to the South Pole, what was the first thing you enjoyed? Do you remember? Well, you know, they have um, uh, wine, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Wine, kind of a, a hot meal, like oh, then maybe there was like baked chicken or something, something that didn't come out of a freeze dry. I just have like, um, in my mind, I have you, you know. sitting there with like a cup of hot chocolate. And I, I just think for me, it would be, I would be like, can somebody please bring me some hot chocolate? Because that would perfect, that would be the cap to this. Yeah. Uh, the thing about those experiences that is that, and I know this has happened for you, you can't foretell how and where that story will be used in your life, not just for your own benefit, but for someone that you're mentoring. How do you think, given the breadth of experience you have in your industry and in your career, how do you think about mentoring others? How does that show up for you? So, you know, it's something I hugely believe in, but it shows up very organically. Early in my career, I told you I spent time at Booz Allen. And of course, they had formal mentor programs. Even when I was at Enron, they had formal mentor programs. But, you know, kind of moving really into the startup world, I mean, there a lot of times you're working in you're working in situations where you don't have formal leadership development or mentoring programs and things like that. And so you have you just A, in terms of finding mentors, you look for people that you have relationships with and just kind of build that relationship and it kind of turns into a mentor-mentee relationship. But similarly, if if people are reaching out to me and there are people who's who I've worked with, that have worked with me and I kind of keep track of their careers and 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 try and give back to them. But it's not, you know, very rarely has it been because there's a a corporate, you know, assigned mentor mentee and you get to develop a relationship. So I think there's a, a difference between kind of being a mentor and being a sponsor. You know, a sponsor is really someone who's like pulling someone behind them and uh, kind of opening up doors. A mentor is much more like the guide, right? The sounding board. And, you know, those are those are things, it, well, particularly for, for kind of women in the workplace, um, you know, people are taught to look for not just mentors, but sponsors. 
frankly, it's a little bit harder sometimes for me to be, you know, a sponsor if I'm if I'm not necessarily in a environment where I can really pull people behind me just because there may not be longevity at the startup. But I can certainly be a mentor and support people on their career paths. And I have done that multiple times. Can you point to an example of where someone did that for you and the impact that it had on you? So I think one of my very early mentors was at Enron, a woman, right? Amanda, she was the president of North America. Um, She actually also ended up being the president in kind of the Enron startup that I joined. And so, you know, I think the, the thing that was really, that I was really grateful for her was not just that she was kind of, you know, we had a good relationship and she was looking out for me, but I mean, there's a lot of practical advice, you know, including advice I didn't necessarily want to hear, right? Or if I was complaining about something, kind of just, you know, it is what it is, get over it. But then also kind of making sure to help provide the guidance that I would need in a, you know, certain environment to succeed, to take advantage of natural skill sets that I had and to address things that I wasn't as good at. And that was really fun to have someone who's, uh, you know, giving you some insights into, you know, what else is going on at the, the executive level and, um, and giving you an opportunity to shine. I read an article recently that uh, was in Outside Magazine. You mentioned, you know, the, the endurance required for the South Pole Expedition. A lot of us as entrepreneurs often are looking at the goal, like, Rather than enjoying the journey and as an endurance athlete, you have to enjoy the, the journey. This really is one foot in front of the other. <laughs> at, at some point on that expedition or many of them, you had to say, no, one more step, one more push. Son- Sonia Looney, a uh, mountain bike racer, she uses a mantra when she's racing that is don't wish it away, mm-hmm. which, is, which is powerful, right? At some point, you're just wishing that it's over. You want to be at the finish line. <laughs> But I've heard from countless entrepreneurs who've had successful exits, who've had illustrious careers, the same similar or a similar mantra, don't wish it away. Is there a particular mantra that helps inspire you on a day-to-day basis, guide your company? I have my pet phrases, right? Not nece- I don't necessarily use them for guidance in my company, but more- Maybe they're guidance more for in you. Terms yeah. Of, yeah, more in terms of kind of aspirations for- for what I want to do or so like on the topic of mentorship and sponsorship and developing people, actually, you know, there's that phrase, you know, if you want to teach someone how to sail, don't give them the mechanics, really. It's like teach them to love the sea. Right. And they'll figure it out. Right. And that is really something that I think a lot about, particularly in the context of a startup, right, where a clean energy startup, which is very, very mission driven, What's our mission? What's our impact? Why are we doing this? Because like, there is so much to do. I cannot always provide day-to-day guidance. So I need people to figure things out, right? So my team, my advisors, it's like, okay, I don't even know what questions sometimes we have to ask. But if we can get all aligned around, look, this is what we're trying to achieve and I can provide the right space and the right environment for people to then be able to figure out not only what are the right questions, but what are the right answers. You know, that is something that I definitely keep in the back of my mind and try to aspire to. I'm not, I don't necessarily say I always do it very well, but um, 
you know, yeah. you, you kind of have to know what you're aspiring to. Like one of my favorite phrases, really, it's really hard to call it a mantra because it, it comes from a, a band called the Butthole Surfers, which, you know, <laughs> I'm is, familiar. I'm familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like, yeah. you know, but the phrase, which I think about a lot and I try and use it a lot to motivate myself is that it's, it's better to regret something that you have done than to regret something that you haven't done. So that one, it, you know, especially when you think about like, should I do it? Should I not? Well, yeah, try. Right. I love that. Actually, I'm really glad you brought that up. That was probably the single most important advice I ever got in college. And uh, my friend Stephen, who was a senior and I was a freshman, constantly saw me just waffling indecisive. Should I do it? Should I not? Context is important, but it was mostly um, around trying new things, which many freshmen in college do. And he said to me, stop living your life for based on kind of how you've been taught to perceive the world. Regret is a terrible thing. Like I'd rather regret the things that I have done than the things that I haven't, which is almost verbatim what you just said. And I haven't heard that reference in the song by the Butthole Surfers, which I'm familiar with the band. But that's really powerful. It's it's funny. A lot of I think a lot of folks draw from songs. I know that um, from the same article actually, uh, Alex Honnold said that he often gets songs stuck in his head when he's climbing. And uh, mm-hmm. the one Hakuna Matata from The Lion King that stuck in his head, <laughs> right? It means no worries, right? That's, right. A, that's a really, and it's important to be able to think on stuff like that. But I want to just comment back to the love the sea visual and, and imagery. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. I feel like in this episode in particular, in this conversation, I'm referencing a lot of things that folks might want to go search or I might have to drop some links for. But have you seen uh, the, there's a YouTube video that was really popular maybe five or six years ago called This Is Water. This is one where fish can't describe water because it's, it is something that they have never experienced life without, right? It is something that is so all-encompassing that they are not even aware of it, right? So this whole idea of love the sea, oftentimes we as founders can get caught up in the fact that the thing that envelops us, we can't even imagine life without it. And the people we're inviting into the journey are just actually deathly afraid of it. They don't know how to swim in it. They don't know what it tastes <laughs> like, right? And, and we're native to it. Like I have almost no fear when it comes to certain things that I want to accomplish. And I'm asking and inviting people along that journey with me, as you are, that inherently don't know this is water. They don't know what this feels right. like uh, or what right. to expect, some deep thoughts here on as we as we round out this interview. Uh, are there any particular books or uh, reading in general that you would point to that has had an outsized impact on the way you uh, have shaped your leadership or that have formed more of who you are? Kind of books that you recommend to others or gift a lot. One book in particular is Drive by Daniel Pink. You know, it's about kind of, you know, intrinsic versus extrinsic motivators. Um, So that's one that when I read that, I mean, that was kind of eye opening to me. It was also at a time when I was trying to rework a compensation plan, an incentive compensation plan. And so that the, the insights there as far as like how to be thinking about like, okay, if you're reworking a compensation plan, that's definitely an 
extrinsic motivator and is that appropriate for um, the type of work that, you know, in that particular instance, I was asking that sales team to do. But then there's this other one, which I really, really like, which is called Switch. And it's by uh, Chip and Dan Heath, right? And um, the concept there, uh, it's basically how to change things when things are hard. And so, you know, I've got that, I've got this meta- metaphor of, you know, the, the driver and the elephant and the heart in the brain. But the thing that I found super, super powerful in that book is the concept of bright spots or bright, bright stars, right? You know, so, and by the way, I mean, I grew up in this like perfectionist, naturally critical, very household, household, right? And so to be able to train, again, go train yourself to like, instead of like honing in on what doesn't work, like hone in on the stuff that does work. Look for the stuff that does work and replicate, right? And so that one is, for me, again, one of these things where it's like, I want to be a better person, right? I've read that. I want to be a better person. I want to implement those types of behaviors in my own life. And how do I do that? Again, having grown up in this, like, you know, very uh, criticism intense kind of household. (laughs) So, well. Both of those books have also had a big impact on me. I, I remember reading both of them around the same time um, when I was living in uh, Miami. Uh, I mean, what a what an awesome and prolific pair of authors you've chosen. Uh, obviously, Dan and Chip have, as brothers, have written a number of books that are themselves worth reading, made to stick upstream, as well as Dan Pink has written some of the best books out there. Like To Sell as Human is one of those like change your mind about, and also A Whole New Mind, which he wrote, but change your mind about how you are aligned with the things that you believe are motivating you. Also the things that you believe are fears like selling, because as his book says, To Sell as Human, actually everything um, that we get in business is derived from the skill of selling. And we're all selling. Constantly. And persuading and moving people, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, definitely. Well, Nisha, I could go on and on. Uh, I love the conversations that we've had together, but I would love to just ask a couple more questions. Where where do you like to be found? Where can people engage with you? Um, you know, over a glass of wine or <laughs> call me on my cell phone, right? And, and actually, so I am active on LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, not Twitter. Um, I am on Twitter, but perhaps a little bit more active on Facebook, but, uh, you know, I'm, maybe I'm old or old fashioned, but I just, I, I would much prefer to see people or, or talk yeah. live. Do you want to just give your email so folks can reach out? Nisha at enuityholdings.com. Yeah. Enuity is E-N-N-U-I-T-Y. And Nisha, by the way, is an N-I-S-A-S-H-A, which you'll see in the, in the show notes. Last question. Let's end with our bold prediction. What are you seeing in the world that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball, Nisha? My crystal ball says that uh, people will put their own capital to work to change the world if we give them the opportunity to do so. You're here. All right, Solar Warriors. That was Nisha Desai of Annuity Holdings, a friend and a fellow Solar Warrior down there in Texas, fighting a good fight to see through this energy transition and help you leverage your own capital as her final parting words suggest. Uh, Be a part of the change. Be a part of the growth of the biggest exchange of wealth in our generation, in uh, in many generations, as uh, Jigger Shah, our friend and uh, 
uh, fellow Suncast, Solar Warrior, uh, has expressed himself. How did this episode sit with you? If, if we've done our job right, you'll not notice that uh, the, the gremlins in the gears uh, <laughs> caused this interview to be broken up into multiple sessions. So I'm really, really, truly grateful for Nisha for her perseverance uh, and patience as we worked through the technical difficulties. Grateful for Chris, the editor. And I'm most of all grateful for you, Solar Warrior. Thank you for tuning in to another Suncast. If you are eager to keep learning, well, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find the show notes, all the links from the Rich Roll episode and other things that I referenced here over on the blog at mysuncast.com. Click on the show notes link. Since you're already going to be online, do me a huge favor and go give a like and a comment to my post on this episode with Nisha on LinkedIn. That is where you can give me all the love that you want to show. You can share this episode if it is uh, if it's truly impactful for you. But mostly, who do you think needs to hear this story? Tag them in the comments on my post and let, the, let them know what your key takeaway is. I know that it will bless Nisha. It will bless me to hear your thoughts as well. Thanks once again to our sponsors who help make this content free to you. You can learn more about our sponsors or as well as how you can partner with our thousands of Suncast listeners over at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Remember, you are what you listen to. So thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>